Welcome to the Boys in Blue podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. Once again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds, and I'm seated again behind the stainless steel titanium microphone inside the Boys in Blue podcast studio here in Mesa, Arizona. And of course, this podcast is all about cops, regular cops, who are regular guys. And a lot of times we see all scenes on TV, the news or whatever, of Cops responding to incidents. We see guys walking around with helmets and machine guns and vests and busting doors. And we wonder who these guys are. Well, today, our guest, we're very fortunate to have with us, Sergeant Travis Ribble from the Mesa Police Department. He is the sergeant with the on the SWAT team there in Mesa PD. So, Sergeant Ribble, welcome to Boys in Blue Pod- Podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you this morning. Yes. Now, you uh, have quite a background. You've worked for several departments. And so, where, first of all, where did you grow up at, Travis? Yes, uh, I grew up in Michigan and uh, I was a, you know, grew up there in a small town and then ended up uh, becoming a police officer there and uh, worked for a small agency for about 11 years before coming here to Mesa, Arizona. Wow. So now when you first got, what drew you to law enforcement to begin with? So I think like a lot of kids, I had, you know, a a lot of interest in the police officer. I liked, I guess, the uniform type of, you know, attraction and the action, et cetera. And then as I was uh, in my high school years, I lived next to a police officer that worked for a local, uh, it's actually a township agency that was near where my home was. And so I became friends with him. And then once I graduated high school, I started doing ride-alongs and then pursued my career from there. You know, is most of the cops I talked to had a mentor, someone they kind of looked up to that just said, wow, I want to be like those guys. And we all have those for sure. So you yes. worked 11 years in <clears throat> Michigan as a police officer. What assignments, right. did, what assignments did you have for those 11 years? So I love to tell this story because it's pretty interesting. So a little bit different than how it happens. Uh, well, I guess it's an East Coast thing, but I had to put myself through the academy. And then once you graduate from the academy, you're given the, you're to be certifiable, but you have to find a job within one year to lock in your, um, it's called your uh, MCOL certification in Michigan. So a lot of, and Michigan's broke up into a lot of small villages and townships, et cetera. I went to work for a very small village. It was one square mile, working part time on the weekends, making six dollars an hour. So that was the that was the first job. But that's just to lock in your certification. Then most guys start looking for full time work, and then I ended up at Ionia County. And uh, you know, when I was there, I worked uh, you know normal road patrol. It was you know again a whole lot different than the Mesa area to where. We had 569 square miles, but there usually was only two of us on shift, maybe three. And then uh, we would get assistance from the state police as well. So it was a, 
it was a good learning experience. I, I really cherish those years because it taught me a lot about being a police officer. You know, it's it's been my experience. I started, like, like you, I started as a reserve and then worked my way up into a, a police officer in a small town. And small town cops, you know, I mean, they're just as important as the large town cops, but a lot of times they're out there by themselves and they really have to learn how to communicate. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Their, back, their backup might be 20 minutes away. So they right. to talk, talk a good game, you know? Yes, sir. So uh, kind of use that as a, uh, you start out in town uh, part time. I, I also mm -hmm. started part time and I think mm -hmm. I got 28, 28 bucks a shift. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy when you think. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I started there and then got the full time job with a, a sheriff's department and you know worked my way there i did uh, ultimately i became a rope patrol sergeant this small stint as a detective sergeant and then uh you know it also was involved with a swat team there a tactical team getting that started etc but it was a good experience so now this was what year what year would you get the swat team going so there, I, well i graduated from the academy in 1996 i'm trying to put these dates in November sure. of 1996, and then, yeah, I did my stint, got on. So it would probably would have been about 2003, 2004 that we, you know, began our SWAT team back then. You know, I can remember what really made SWAT popular was the TV program SWAT with L.A. Oh, for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so then all of a sudden, I remember the department we had, I was on, the sheriff's department I was on. They didn't really have a SWAT team. It just we had a guy that was really a good shot. He was a hunter, <laughs> right? And he, and he would carry his three hundred eight hunting rifle around in his trunk if we needed SWAT team. <laughs> Absolutely, a lot of guys did that. Oh my goodness! But that's what that's the old days. Now, man, it's changed a lot. So now you had eleven years there, and then you made, did a lateral transfer to Mesa, Arizona. I did. I had always had a desire to work for a large metropolitan uh, agency and in Michigan, you know, the, the large city next to me was Grand Rapids and that was considered large. But when you think about what we have here in Arizona, there was only 300 officers and then you had the state police, but that was, you know, that it was a good agency, but once you change assignments, they could move you anywhere in the state. So I didn't want that. And then I never had any desire to work for Detroit PD because there's just they had a lot of uh, issues and problems that they were dealing with. So I started searching all over the country. And at that time in 2008, Mesa had one of the best lateral programs to where, you know, you don't come in making the base pay. They give you some years of experience as long as you get through the FTO program, et cetera, and get off probation. So I jumped on it and my family was willing to do it. And so now here we are 12 years later. Wow. So, so, okay, so 12 years with Mesa, lateral. How'd, how'd you deal with the climate change? <laughs> you know, I didn't, obviously, anyone that deals with the heat here, it's definitely an eye-opener. However, anyone that has worked in the cold weather to where you just, I mean, the wind chills, et cetera, the snow, I would take the heat any day over the, over the cold, for sure. So I have adjusted to it, and I love it. You know, I'm the same way, but it's getting so crowded here. 
that when people do ask me, well, how is it? And I said, oh, it's horrible. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's snakes and scorpions. And oh, it's yeah. unbearable. And there's still wild Indians out here. I mean, gee, don't come. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, stay away. But so 12 years with Mason now. And now what assignments did you have before you became the sergeant of SWAT? So with Mesa. I, yeah, when I came on patrol uh, or started with Mesa, I, my first assignment, well, I did a couple of jump arounds before because we, we bid for shifts here once a year. So before I could get into the bid process, I jumped around like a swing shift, et cetera. Um, but I ultimately ended up at our central district, which is our downtown district on graveyards. I like working night shift and, um, lo and behold, numerous guys on graveyards, uh, were part of the Mesa SWAT team. And so they started reaching out to me, obviously, as we got to know each other. And uh, that I decided to test for the team in 2010. And back then, we were still part-time, a part-time SWAT team. Now we're full-time. So I went through the testing process and was fortunate enough to make the team. And I did that for, gosh, until 2016. Um, because in 2010, uh, we got called in one day and it was decided by the powers to be at that time to make our SWAT team be full time, meaning we had no other collateral assignments and we all worked together then 40 hours a week, you know, in our special, <clears throat> excuse me, special operations building. And then I did that till 2016 as a SWAT guy full time. And then I decided to promote to sergeant. Now, once they promoted you to sergeant, did they take you out of SWAT so you could Pay your rookie so, sergeant dues on graveyard. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. So you you do have to leave SWAT because there's definitely with our department. There's, I don't know that it's ever actually written in policy, but an unwritten rule: you need to come out and work the street for a year. Yeah, has that happened all the time? No, they've had some exceptions, but yeah. So I went back to the street. I could have stayed on the team as a part time. Um, they call it an assistant team leader sergeant. But I was really enjoying, uh, I had a lot of new guys that would bid to my shift and I really provided a lot of extra training, et cetera, for them. So I couldn't, for me personally, I didn't want to commit to the team and being the patrol sergeant that I thought I should be. So I left the team and then it was a year ago, actually this month that I knew some opportunities were coming up that the team was going to need a sergeant team leader. And lo and behold, it actually worked out, and they the team voted and decided to bring me back as a sergeant team leader. So that was that was definitely a good a good thing, and I love it. Wow, that's great. Now, uh, how many sergeants are there on the SWAT? Is it just you, or no? We have three sergeant team leaders and one uh, lieutenant. Those they are called our commander. Okay, okay, yeah. Now to make sergeant. So you came, you made sergeant there in Michigan, and then came out to yep. Mesa and just start all over from the bottom, and then took the sergeant's test and passed. Now you're sergeant here, right? So did your education? No, I think you told me you have an associate's and you're working on your bachelor's in business administration. Did that help you with uh, your promotion testing and that sort of thing for the sergeant's position? <laughs> It definitely did. Back in Michigan, most departments, which again, it's different than Arizona, were wanting at least an associate's degree and some were even requiring bachelor's. And I think it's even gotten to most departments want bachelor's degrees now in Michigan. <clears throat> but 
the promotional process back there is a little bit different where it was an interview and the administrations would pick who they thought the best leaders were. There wasn't a, a huge testing process, but then here in Arizona, it's a very formal process to where there's a written test, et cetera, et cetera. And then some points are applied, but yeah, based on your college credits, you do have to have so many, you don't have to have a degree, but they need to see that you're moving towards a degree to promote to sergeant here in Mesa. Sure. Sure. Okay, so back to Michigan for a minute. Uh, yes. Now, you probably had some interesting calls back there. I mean, 11 years and on the part-time SWAT and all that. Can you tell us about maybe one of the uh, most challenging calls? Did you have any, like, uh, shooting incidents I, you're comfortable talking about? Right. I sure can. Yeah, so it would have been in 2005 I was involved in a shooting where uh, me and another deputy had went to a house just to uh, go try to pick up somebody on a, they had a warrant for their arrest because they had uh, driven while intoxicated and then they didn't show up for court. So the court issues a, a warrant for their arrest. So we went to this house. It's something that we would do on a regular basis and it's very common in law enforcement. And we had made contact with this suspect. There was a, a younger gentleman. I, I can't remember exactly what his age was. And there was a little bit of going back and forth about trying to get him to come outside, et cetera. And then as I pushed open the door a little bit, cause I wanted to see what was behind the door. If you can imagine an old Michigan farmhouse where they have a mud room, but you enter the mud room where people take off their muddy boots and hang their coats. And then another door going to the house. And lo and behold, when we opened that door, there was this suspect's father standing there pointing a gun at us. Oh man. So yeah. So at that point, uh, ordered him to drop the weapon. He didn't. And we were in full uniform, et cetera. So I fired and unfortunately he lost his wife or lost his life there. And, uh, because you know, I had to shoot to protect my partner and I, so that was probably a difficult thing. I was still, I mean, I'd st I mean, I was in my thirties, still a young officer, still learning a lot. So, it was somewhat of a controversial shooting because this gentleman was a Vietnam veteran and known in the community, but it had come to be known that he was actually legally deaf and legally blind. He had not put on his glasses, had not put in his hearing aids. So we, who will, we will never know no. what he was seeing or what he was no. thinking at that time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that what was kind a of big what? challenge. And then the civil, the civil lawsuit after that was probably even, harder because that lasted up to six years. And, you know, when you go through that, I'm sure you, I mean, people hear a lot from officers that you don't understand that why it ends up being a business decision to pay these people out. And that's what happened. But it was a good thing that I've been able to share with other people. Like, yeah, was I angry at the time that, Hey, I know I did the right thing, et cetera. But at the time I didn't understand, well, why would we pay this family any money? But now I get it that when a city or a county does something like that, it's, it's a business decision with the insurance companies. So it, I have been able to talk to other officers about that throughout my years that have experienced the same thing and help them deal with that mentally. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, takes some wisdom and some, uh, few years under your belt to realize it's not personal. <laughs> right. Just like, yeah, like absolutely. You say, it's, uh, it's just a numbers game. It's not, nothing personal. In fact, yes. I can remember um, it. the county I worked with there in, in uh, Washington, mm -hmm. 
we had a wonderful guy come on um, as the sheriff. And uh, people were suing us right and left just because they could, you know, even if they right. were guilty. And finally, I can remember I had a canine capture, and my dog just ripped this guy's coat you know, really bad. Yeah. And uh, the guy sues. Uh, he's totally guilty and everything, but he sues. And the county pays out $1,700 to this guy to buy him a coat and stitch up his arm, whatever the dog did. And right. the sheriff looked at that, and he said, that's it. No more. You want any money out of us? You get your attorney, and we're going to court. And I'll tell you, that did more for morale than you would ever believe. Absolutely, now, yes. He, you know, sometimes it is cheaper to pay them off and get rid of them, but it sure doesn't look mm -hmm. good and doesn't sit well with the young guys. You know, don't quite it, quite get the whole point. Right, it, it doesn't. They, you don't understand. I mean, yeah, learning the process that for a civil suit, it only takes 51% to decide one way or another in, a, in those types of lawsuits. So, mm. yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. So but I understand it now. <laughs> oh, oh, I tell you what. But, you know, and those kind of calls, uh, Sarge, this, you know, those are tough because second, you're in second frame now. You know that, okay, right. when you, you go up that door, you don't know he hasn't got glasses. You don't know he hasn't right. got scary names. I don't know. What kind of right. weapon did he have? He had a, uh, it was a 1911-style pistol. Oh, my gosh. You know, you're looking at a forty five sitting there. Yeah. Right. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, you came through that okay, and what a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that goes a long way with your mentoring the younger guys coming along. So just give them a word of wisdom here and there and that sort of thing. Yeah. So now, you've been here in Mesa for 11 years. Do you have any calls here that are kind of memorable? or? Uh... <clears throat> well, gosh. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, obviously lots of experiences. I've had some pretty tough ones. Uh, you know... Um, obviously kids are one of the hardest things, but an interesting story and also tragic, but now it's turned out to be a great story was it was actually when you promote to Sergeant Mesa, you go through what we call a step program. And so you ride with another already made Sergeant. It's an eight week program. So you ride with them just to make sure, you know, you know what you're doing and you can handle that position. And it was actually my first day. We hadn't even left the office yet. And a peculiar call came in about a gentleman had left an apartment and he believed that someone inside that apartment was possibly trafficking a child for oh, sex acts. Right. So, you know, to be honest with you, at first, you know, you get some weird calls like that, that, you know, we didn't know how credible the caller was because he had hung up. We couldn't get a hold of him again. And so you go and you're like, yeah, I wonder if this is really going on. Well, ultimately, uh, one of the patrol guys did some real good intel and just saw something, someone riding away on a bike that looked um, kind of flustered. And so they stopped him. And sure enough, it was the guy that had called us. So at that point, then he was willing to talk more. So he gave us the apartment and we went. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, we, when we got there, um, we were met with a gentleman that... Um, just by the way he was dressed, et cetera, we knew something was wrong. So we pulled him out of the apartment. He didn't want to talk to us. So we, for the welfare of, you know, someone possibly being inside. So it gives us one of the exceptions to not need a search warrant. We searched the apartment and I had the unfortunate experience of 
pulling a girl that was being kept in a trash bag there that was being trafficked. So it made the news here in Mesa. It was a big deal. Um, they just finally have had some people sentenced over this that were still involved in the case. But a good story out of it is, is obviously she, this little girl has been through um, hell that we can't even, you know, think what that would be like. And the first foster care family that uh, took her in ended up adopting her and she is doing great now. Um, thriving in school is with a good family, et cetera. So that was probably a, the most significant I've had here in Mesa as far as, you know, memorable. And I still have feelings about it, et cetera. Sure. You know, that's, um, that is valuable to, uh, people to even hear that for the simple fact that rather than look at the terrible part about it, yeah, it was, but you know, because, uh, Sergeant Gribble was working that day look how lives have changed, you know, what you were able right. to do as a police officer. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that you had to experience that kind of thing, but look how it came out and look what could have been. Say that officer wasn't diligent in uh, getting that intel on the guy riding away in the bike. I mean, it all just comes together right. good police work. I mean, that's something to really mm -hmm. celebrate, that you were able to stop what was going yeah. on, put, put the bad guy away, and yeah, you got mm -hmm. some mental stuff we have to kind of work our way through, but in the end... Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it takes, I can hear the 21 years, uh, 22 years experience, you know, you came out and you're focusing on the positive part and that is so good. Right. Uh, for yep. sure. Yeah. And there's been, you know, some other great causes. It's interesting when you interviewed Lieutenant Brian Solar and he had talked about the, the call that he had went on out in East Mesa where his patrol car was shot, et cetera. That was one of the good <laughs> SWAT calls that I went on. Yeah, oh, got called in. Yeah, so I, I listened to that and heard that. Yeah, that was a very memorable call for our team to where we ended up pretty much bringing down that structure with our armored vehicles all around that guy till he finally surrendered. But yeah, our armors was was getting shot at and hit, and patrol cars had been struck. So that was a memorable night. So it's kind of funny to hear him recount yeah. that as well. Well, now it's very important, Sarge, that you don't leave out the fact that the canine was the hero there. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yes, we being, an okay, being an old canine officer, I got to throw that in. Oh, I tell you, yeah, our canine—they're assigned with our special operations, um, you know, uh, unit, and they—we use them on almost every single SWAT call we go on, and those guys are great. They're like, I mean, just a terrific tool, and we are so comfortable working with those dogs now that the dogs will listen to us give commands. Like if they get pulled away from the handler, they're off lead, et cetera. So a tool that I absolutely love. You know, that's one of the things I enjoyed of being canine. Um, I wasn't on the SWAT team, but I worked with them enough. And right. uh, the dogs know who the good guys are, you know. For sure. <laughs> they they know, do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are, we're a team here. That guy's got a uniform. <laughs> they're not mm -hmm. dumb. They're sure. Uh, well, what is probably now you've been did you have any other assignments other than patrol and SWAT what's your most enjoyable assignment has it been SWAT yeah I'll tell you you know I don't have I'm a SWAT guy at heart you know I'm SWAT and patrol to be honest with you if most of the SWAT guys on our team now yeah they if they said tomorrow that the SWAT team's no longer in existence all of us would probably go back to patrol so yeah I've done you know, the detective sergeant thing, a brief time in Michigan, but I am not 
uh, sit behind a desk and do these lengthy investigations type of guy. I really like the patrol side of it to where we had to go out and we solved the situation for that moment and hopefully help some people be safer that night. And then the SWAT thing, now we're, you know, we get called out for some great stuff and we support a lot of the special operations units. So I get to see a wide range from our violent offender units to our drug task force, et cetera. I get to touch them all from the SWAT capacity. So I, that's, that's my memorable and most enjoyable. Well, you know what? There's so much here that I want to talk to you about. I could talk to you for three hours, but let me cut, <laughs> to, this, let me cut to this part. Uh, now, do you assist other agencies? We will, yeah. So, I mean, we kind of touch them in a lot of different ways. Mesa is, we've taken a big role in the Valley as far as uh, uh, we do a basic SWAT school where a lot of other SWAT teams come, so we help them in that capacity. We'll go do work for them. We do work for the DEA. Uh, we actually just did a search warrant this morning for ADOT, that they had some fraudulent plates that was a case that reached across the country. So, yeah, we get to we get to help them a lot. And then I actually get to do some of that more with other agencies. I was recently appointed the state director of training for the Arizona Tactical Officers Association. So I work with agencies all across the state personally. Oh, wow, that's great. Well, the reason I bring that up is, now I know President Trump was out at Mesa Gateway. That must have just been, wow, you guys had oh, yeah. on on your game for that. We did you were, have other? Yeah. Did you have your other departments assisting you with that, other than maybe perimeter stuff for patrolling that, or just just perimeter? But we had mostly, yeah. We obviously had our crowd control units, uh, street crimes units came out. Obviously, patrol was a big input and imprint, and then you know SWAT handled the tactical side of it. And uh, in fact, we're getting involved today. Is um, you know Trump's coming into town. We're going to have a small. Uh, you know, thing involved with that because our mayor is going to go and meet with President Trump. So it's, uh, yeah, when that comes in town, we know this being an election year, he's expected to come in numerous times between now and November. So we're, we're getting geared up for that, having a lot of interaction. You know, and that's where I was going to take this. Uh, <clears throat> this won't record today, so we're pretty safe about <laughs> that. Trump right. is coming, coming into Phoenix today. I guess it's Phoenix. Yes. Is it Phoenix? Okay, so it is not Phoenix. Phoenix. Yes, it's not. I didn't yep. know if the fairgrounds were in the county or the city of Phoenix. So, but so that's got to be. Uh, I'm just thinking. I mean, I'm sure Phoenix has a very capable uh, SWAT operation there. But in the meantime, I mean, what happens if something else goes down? You know, that kind of thing. So, right. Yeah, and that's uh, what. Well, we do have. You know, you do mention that. For instance, like uh, there'll be times where Tempe, maybe they've been cashed out for too many operations or like, Hey, the guy's got to get some sleep. Can you cover the city of Tempe? And we've done that. And then they've also done that for us as well. So that type of thing. And then, yeah, today, for instance, the only reason we're even involved with that is because our mayor is going to go and meet with him. But Phoenix is fully capable. Those guys are great. And they have a tremendous team and very capable of handling that. Well, okay. As far as SWAT goes, okay. Uh, people look at, on TV and they see you guys in your helmets and machine guns and they look like machine guns. Uh, all right. the, your vest and equipment. Tell me some of the equipment that a SWAT officer has to be proficient with. 
Absolutely. I can do that. So yeah, obviously the pictures that everyone sees, you know, we have what we call our M4 rifle. That's our primary rifle. And it's not, I know people like to call them machine guns. It's a, you know, um, it's not an automatic weapon, anything like that. It's, uh, we pull the trigger one at a time and make the shots, but it's a very accurate weapon and very durable. So when we make entries into houses, et cetera, that's what we use. And then we also have obviously our pistols. Uh, we have less lethal, uh, guns that we use a beanbag shotgun. We have something that shoots 40 millimeter rubber bullets. We have gas guns, um, et cetera. So a lot of equipment. We now are getting proficient with, uh, as far as night vision goggles, because any hostage rescue thing, we may use that to have like a stealth to contact type operation. We have, um, with that comes lasers on our rifles that we have to be able to shoot with the night vision on. So it's just a lot of things. <laughs> lasers, boy, that's, that's the greatest thing. Uh, follow the red dot. <laughs> right. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, so what caliber is that in for? It's a two, two, three. Okay. Okay. Are, are they mm -hmm. hollow points? Oh, uh, they're not hollow points, but they're, I mean, they're capable around that, that we can, you know, they'll penetrate a vehicle, et cetera. So we, our range staff is great along with, we have a couple of subject matter experts on the SWAT team that they pick the best round for, that gives us an overall, obviously you can't have the perfect round for everything, but they choose the one that's going to be best overall for us. Okay. Now, one of the things that, I'm sure because I see these guys, uh, your physical training, what's the requirement for that? And is there an ongoing, uh, <clears throat> qualification to make sure that the guys are in shape and able to carry out the duties of SWAT? It is. So when an officer decides that he wants to pursue a career in SWAT, they have to go through a testing process. And the very first test that we give them on testing day is they have to go through a physical fitness test that, includes uh you know a mile and a half run they have to do a 400 meter sprint shuttle run a bench press push-ups sit-ups pull-ups just an overall and we don't just pick those things randomly we have worked with fitness experts to study the best testing process to give we want an overall guy we don't want a guy that can run you know a marathon but yet he can't you know bench press his body weight Sure. And vice versa. We don't, we don't want a guy that's just nothing but muscle, but he can't run, you know, yeah. 500 yards or whatever it may be. So we look for an overall guy. So yeah, they have to go through that. If they make it through that and then make it onto the team, then we have, we test ourselves twice a year with that same test. Okay. Now with that, we do, we do give our operators uh, one hour of workout time per day on shift so they can maintain that because we do expect, you know, a, a higher level of physical fitness. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to be able to jump those walls, especially with all that equipment. What do you got about 25 pounds of equipment on? I wish it was that light. If you, with our heavy vest helmets and you know, our magazines, extra magazines and our rifle slung, it's about 70 extra pounds. Wow. Wow. You know, now that I, I get that number because that's what the normal patrolman's walking around with. Right. People don't realize that. Why didn't you run him down? Well, you know, I had my gun belt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boots, it's not you know. easy to look sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Make it look easy. So, uh, what are some of the mental attributes you look for? I know there's, you probably have a waiting list for guys that want to be on SWAT. 
We do. We have a process that once, uh, if the guy makes that initial, he gets through that initial testing process, they then are invited to continue the testing process by attending our 80-hour basic SWAT school. If they make it through that, then we ask them to continue. They can start coming to our full team trainings, and then the next step would be going through a hostage rescue school that we put on. But then even after that, they go to, it's kind of, we it's a part-time element to where these guys are still have their other assignments. Most of them are on patrol, but they still come to all our call-outs, et cetera. And it, it really gives us a time to vet this person because we aren't looking for a person that's perfect on the first day. We're looking for a person that is trainable. We're looking for a person that can accept positive or constructive criticism and then move on and make that correction. And we're looking for someone that their personality blends well with the team because we are together a lot we have just this last friday we worked 17 hours because we were so busy with call outs you've got to have a group of guys not that we're i mean we're a family we sometimes get in arguments but we're able to work through those things and come out on the other side it's got to be someone that's going to fit in the family so we do have some we have a lot of say as a team who we're going to take it's not just a commander's decision etc the team gets a vote that's great. That's great. So I'm thinking uh, you as a sergeant, your leadership skills are very, very important. What is maybe one of your biggest challenges being a sergeant with, uh, I mean, we're talking about it. How many, how many guys on the team, Sarge? So we have, with the part-time guys right now, we have 25. <laughs> 25. Okay. So, you know, eight guys, a sergeant, whatever, however that works out. But you're right. talking about 25 type A. <laughs> yes. You know, and you do bring, you bring up a great point because when I, when I first promoted to sergeant, I was on the street. I had a lot of young guys bidding in my shift because they knew my background. These guys were sponges. Mm. I could tell them anything. It was extremely intimidating to come back to the team because these, I mean, the operators, these guys are as skilled as they come. So, I, yeah, I was thinking, how am I going to lead them? But a lot of it comes from, I lead by example, showing them, you know, the right attitude, how to look at things. It's, uh, and just mentoring those guys and showing them, uh, how to progress in their careers. And then as a sergeant for my team, we're all about, Hey, what does my team need to get better? And so I help them do that. But, you know, it's, it is not an easy thing being a sergeant on, on our SWAT team, but it is something that I enjoy. And these guys are great, so I'm very fortunate. You got to be a clean Clint Eastwood guy, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, my hats my, my hats off to you. That, but that's that's not an easy job to be on SWAT, but then to be the leader of those guys. I mean, um, the biggest thing I find with leadership is uh, the leaders I respected that I just followed. The last thing I ever wanted to do. It wasn't like. Uh, be reprimanded and i didn't want to disappoint them i wanted them to be so right. proud of me you know not instilling that in someone that not everybody can do that so my hat's off to you for that well Thank listen you. travis you've been of an amazing interview there's like i say i could talk to you for three hours on this but we're kind of running out of time now what would you tell someone that's uh, in patrol now and they're inspiring to be a swat officer <clears throat> other than other than get yourself in physical condition Mm-hmm. You know, what we do get advice? asked that a lot. We get asked that a lot. And we tell the young guys that, hey, in your current assignment, 
just be the best that you can be. Go out on patrol, learn how to back people up, learn how to be a good partner, be a person that is going to make your team better. Because, I mean, you know, Bill, from being in law enforcement, people talk and we hear about people. You know, a lot of it is uh, we'll hear about some young officer that's making a name for himself on the street. And then we may come out and personally recruit you and say, hey, why don't you come out and start acting for us in our force on force things and training and just to get some face time. And that's that's honestly how we like to do it, you know, um, because we will we will hear how you are in the street and what kind of reputation you're making for yourself amongst the patrol officers. There you go. Do the best you can right where you're at. Yeah. Right. What's it all saying? Bloom where you're planted. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, Travis, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, we might have you again because I've got like 14 questions <laughs> I didn't even get to here. But Well, I'd be, be glad to. Thank you. Well, listen, brother, be safe out there. Take care of uh, the prez if you we'll happen do. to get we'll over do. there. And listen... Thank you so much for being on the Boys in Blue podcast. Godspeed, be safe, and we'll be talking to you, okay? Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think.